0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We're going to hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. How are you, David? I'm great. Hello, Peter. Hello, Anna. Hello. And I'm, of course, your host, Peter Tilden. On today's show,
1: there's a certain chemical or substance on the umbilical cord that's going to help type 1 diabetes. Curious to hear about that. Also, a favorite topic of this show, the recurring topic of the fecal matter transplant. We're going to be talking about how it can prevent some diseases.
0: In this week's This Just Happened, we got breakthrough news if you're going bald. If you've already gone bald, hold on. That may be you too. We'll find out. And in our caller question, when we get to, hey, what about me? We've got someone who called in about their kid and peanut allergies, which apparently uh, happens to a lot of kids. More and more kids are getting peanut allergies Why is that today? But first?
1: First, let's talk about this. Dr. Kipper stem cells on the umbilical cord, that's where all the good stuff is, and apparently now it's going to help type 1 diabetics?
2: Yes, as a matter of fact. Type 1 diabetes, we know to be an autoimmune disorder. What that means is that our immune system attacks our own cells, our own tissues, and in this case, it attacks the beta cells in the pancreas, and the beta cells are the cells that make insulin. Type 1 diabetes begins in children and young adults. The only treatment now is to be given insulin injections, which nobody wants. So how does this relate to stem cells? Well, first of all, what are stem cells? Well, stem cells are cells that can develop into other kinds of specialized cells. So blood cells, brain cells, heart cells, bone cells, etc., These specific cells all have to come from somewhere, and they come from these stem cells. We have stem cells as adults. These are not as versatile. They're not as durable as the embryonic stem cells. But why are they so interesting? Well, if you look at stem cells and you watch them mature, you can actually see how different diseases develop. They're used now in regenerative medicine, and they can be directed, these cells, into very specific cells that have been injured like in the spinal cord or the joints or in the brain tissue that relates to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and stroke and in heart cells. There's an interesting uh, study that went on probably five years ago where they took people that had had massive heart attacks and where the heart muscle dies and they injected stem cells into these areas of the ventricle, the muscle of the heart, and these cells regenerated and their heart function got better. So these were early studies but we're, again, we're expanding our use of these stem cells uh, in, in very interesting ways. They can actually alter adult stem cells to become embryonic stem cells with gene-altering technology. That we're going to see more of. But if we turn to the umbilical cord, which is where the embryonic stem cells are living, we have now discovered that we can find these cells also in the amniotic fluid, which is the fluid that bathes the embryo, not just in the cord, but in the fluid around it. We've been unable to use the embryonic cells from the umbilical cord. This was a law that was uh, passed by George Bush years ago for religious purposes that we couldn't use this material. Other countries don't have these same restrictions, so they've been a little further along in this game of using these embryonic stem cells. The FDA has approved stem cells, however, for some diseases such as uh, myelofibrosis, which is a scarring of the bone marrow, very common in people over 70, acute myelocytic leukemia, bone marrow transplants. And now we're looking at these stem cells in treating the autoimmune diseases like diabetes. There was a really interesting study from Sweden with these stem cells. And they took 10 adults with early stage type 1 diabetes, and they infused these people with mesenchymal stem cells. The mesenchymal stem cells are the actual goo inside of the umbilical cords. They have a specific name called Wharton's jelly. And these mesenchymal stem cells Actually, dampen the harmful immune response to foreign cells. They lack a certain molecule that normally triggers the immune response. So, by giving these to people, you are actually blunting that immune reaction. They took five other type 1 diabetics who were given placebo infusions. And here were the results, which were really interesting. They measured two things they measured insulin needs and how much insulin that diabetic would need over time. And usually with type 1 diabetes, those levels need to go up. They need more and more insulin as their disease progresses. And they measured something called C-peptide. And C-peptide is a marker for how much insulin your body makes. So they both indirectly and directly relate to how well the pancreas is functioning and here's how the results came out which i think is really interesting the patients that were given the placebo or no stem cells they had c peptide levels that fell about 50% and which meant that there was much less insulin in their system which we would predict in a type 1 diabetic and they also needed much more insulin to control their diabetes whereas the patients that were given the stem cells These people had C-peptide levels that only fell about 10%, and there was no change in the amount of insulin they needed to control their disease. They did these studies over a year, and these results, I think, are really impressive. And so what they indicate is that using these mesenchymal stem cells, you are having less of an autoimmune reaction, less damage to the pancreatic beta cells. And therefore, it slows the progression of type 1 diabetes. Not a cure, but certainly slows things down. And where this is important is that we know that when you diagnose diabetes, you have about a 10-year window before you start seeing secondary effects of the diabetes. Diabetes, as we've discussed, is a vascular disease. So the blood vessels in the brain... In the heart and the kidneys over 10 years of having this form of diabetes, they start to break down. And that's where we see kidney failure, heart attacks, stroke, um, and, all, and blindness, all these secondary effects. So, this is really good news for type 1 diabetics. How do you get it? Well, they're in development now. We have the science now that backs this up. So, now the race is on to put this out. So, it, I don't think it'll be a long time. That's great. And as I mentioned in the beginning of this discussion, we're finding these in the amniotic fluid. So we don't really need the cord. We don't need the umbilical cord. But still,
1: ladies, save your cords. Am I right?
2: Absolutely.
1: I didn't know this, by the way, when I had my daughter. I would have have put that stuff in a jar. I don't know.
2: (laughs) You freeze it, right? Yes. And this is really a good point, Anna, and that we should consider everyone that's having a baby that you should consider putting your cord aside and holding on to it because you've got some valuable cells in there.
1: Let's talk about our next story, which I am, we're always fascinated by the gut microbiome here on this podcast. We've discussed this many times, but now they're finding even more uses for the fecal transplant, which by the way, I I don't even know how to, can you talk about the new developments, but also how would one go about asking a doctor for a fecal transplant?
0: Isn't it funny, David? We've talked about this for
2: years. It's still an awkward topic. These conversations are very difficult, and they're not just difficult with your patients. They're difficult with your colleagues. It's very difficult as an internist to get gastroenterologists to do this because, first of all, their patients don't want it. They don't want to get involved with it. Remember, the delivery system for fecal transplants initially was putting a fecal product through a nasogastric tube, putting a tube in your nose, which by itself is not pleasant, and then putting the product through that tube to get it into your stomach. Then they got a little better, and they started putting those tubes up your behind. And then they got a little better, and they started putting those transplanted uh, fecal materials through the poop chute. And then, and now, fortunately, we actually have developed what we call crapsules. <laughs> and these are capsules. Is that the medical uh, terminology that's actually it? It's, it's one that I like to use. But, <laughs> and, and by the way, quite welcomed by anyone that's considering a fecal transplant. And not only that, to make this even better, if you can possibly make fecal transplants better, you can actually create the fecal material in a laboratory. So you don't even need the feces. Now you
1: don't have to harvest it from another human.
0: No. Hey, guys, now we can create even more waste in a lab.
1: But don't do it in the same lab they're creating the fake meat. We don't want to confuse the two.
0: And David, is the lab produced fecal matter as, as potent to the gut and not rejected?
2: Yes, actually, we believe that they are. You know, the history of this is sort of interesting. They, they first reported fecal transplants in the 4th century AD, and they used this for infectious diarrhea. In the 1950s, we had a rebound of this treatment by a doctor in Colorado who also successfully treated diarrhea. But it wasn't until 50 years later that the Dutch brought this back with some excellent results. So this has not been a a new problem, but there's been a lot of years in between. So it's not something that has gained a lot of traction.
0: But it is interesting that even far back, they figured that your waste matter had something of value in it that if introduced back in the system could help. This is before gut bacteria and gut biome and and the probiotics and all that stuff, that there was a suspicion that there was a nutrient in there that could help. That's interesting.
2: And this speaks to the microbiome, which is located, as we've discussed, in an area between the small bowel and the colon. It's called the cecum. That's where most of this activity takes place. And there are trillions of these colonies of bacteria, viruses, fungi. And there are other pockets in the intestine where the microbiome can can work. But remember, there's a direct communication between the microbiome and the brain. And the microbiome for each of us is genetically inherited. It's very specific to each one of us. And things that affect your microbiome, uh, antibiotics, chemotherapy, infections, our diet, alcohol, they can all mess with our microbiome. So, Our genetics and epigenetics determine what that colonization looks like, but all these other things can get in the way and change it. So we also know that this can affect and create other illnesses. And it's we see a a change in the microbiome that directly relates to, it's a long list of inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel disease. Obesity, malnutrition, diabetes, as we're discussing, arthritis, uh, liver failure, uh, skin cancers, autoimmune diseases, uh, neurodegenerative diseases like the Alzheimer's and the Parkinson's, bipolar disorders. Anyhow, the list goes on. It's incredible. And of the most common that we know of these illnesses is C. diff. And what is C. diff? C. diff is a bacteria. Clostridium difficile is the name of the bacteria, which we call C. diff. And we get C. diff when our microbiome is overrun and changed by the use of antibiotics. So antibiotics obviously kill bacteria, right? So if you're suppressing one population or colony of bacteria, others are going to overgrow. And if the C. diff overgrows, you're looking at a lot of diarrhea, and the diarrhea is very difficult to treat. Um, And it can actually be life-threatening in older people. It creates dehydration, and it's difficult to treat. Our treatment now, what we're using is vancomycin. And vancomycin does a pretty good job at about 25% of people that take vancomycin for this. They have a recurrence, and half of those people just keep going on and having further recurrences. So it is a problem. The other thing, is, as you both brought up. It's very difficult to think of our poo as anything but stinky and awful to now becoming medicine. The reasons for that are obvious. Looks bad, smells bad, doesn't have a great connotation on any level. Uh, and the delivery system, as we said, is not that inviting until now that we have these capsules. And then, Anna, to your question, whose poo do we use?
1: Yeah, I feel like we should really and screw like Us Weekly and celebrities. The people who should be on the cover of the People magazine or the People with the good poo, they're gonna
2: save. They're gonna save the world. And there are those people. These people are called super donors, and they have they have the most sort of broad based, diverse uh, microbiome that you can get. When I was researching my book, I was looking into the microbiome at length. And what we found was that the people that had the most diverse microbiome are the people that had the best survival records. So there's a lot to the microbiome that we're continuing to learn. And you get a super, what a producer. I mean, they could
0: donate. It's not like donating blood. This is like an endless.
1: <laughs> endless. En- every endless, day. Endless, yeah, a new donation.
0: Day. Right. And right. I would imagine right. you don't
1: even need that much from each donut. You can like, each donation would provide, every every donation will save 1,400 <laughs> lives. Please consider becoming uh, a super donor.
0: Hi, I'm Hal. I'm a super donor. You may have seen me on <laughs> Time Magazine. Oh, I got to go right now. Saving lives. So there, there, there you go. I mean, that's the ad. David, the, the weird thing about this, because yeah, we go to funny and we go to, it's A, it's powerful medicine. But to that point, how do the medical companies feel about this? Because Merck doesn't own my, the super donor poop; It's not a medicine they produce. So how are they going to jack up the prices if it's naturally Yeah, how, natu- how, natu- how are natu- we going to get occurring? ripped off? <laughs> yeah, how it's naturally occurring. Are the medical companies pushing back, the pharmaceutical companies pushing back on this? Is there that's a negative a backlash question.
2: because they don't own it or do they own it? Or is there some way to, That that's the weird thing for me. Well, backlash is an interesting word in this conversation, Peter. but I do think that the pharmaceutical companies are going to wake up now because if you can manufacture this in a laboratory, it's like they do everything else Oh, okay, uh, and again, if you look at all these other diseases and how how the microbiome is affected and what we can do with this super poop basically it's it's endless so i I think the opposite I think that there's going to be a a wave of products that are coming out. Yeah, us. but if
0: this can be nurtured organically, let's put it that way, for
2: cheap, that's going to be a very competitive part of this, isn't it? But that is the conversation. We've been doing this for a long time organically, but we can't push the concept. We can't get the super donors in volume. So we're really looking at a problem of perception, of connotation, so I think people are going to be much happier going at this with something that's manufactured. Yeah.
0: And in this week's "This Just Happened," this is a huge, huge thing—potentially a great thing for bald guys and and women. Anybody who has a, a baldness issue—they've been trying to do this, break this code along with diet, uh, the place in the brain to find that uh, makes you satiated. If they could find a place to grow hair. Well, it appears this week, and this just happened, they're talking about grown hair, right, David?
2: Yes, and it's one of the bigger issues I see in my practice as an internist, and it's not restricted to men or women, young or old. The demographic is pretty much everyone. And everyone has this theory that it's based on your mother's father's hair pattern My mother's father was bald at 20, so that doesn't work. But there's a little bit more to it. But this study was done at the university in Northwestern in Chicago. And what they discovered was that the follicle stem cells are no longer creating new hair. They're there. They're not dead. They're just not working well. And I analogize this to arthritis in a joint. You use a joint over and over again and that wears down and it's not working as well so you become less functional. It's very much the same analogy. So, if you think about the implication of what happens when someone is losing their hair, and this is why it's a trillion dollar industry, but it's evolved very slowly over all these years. I mean, the anxiety, the depression, the self-esteem issues. What we have now and what we've had for a long time without much change are medicines. There's Propecia, there's Rogaine, which is also called Minoxidil. That's the stuff you rub onto your scalp. It's messy. Uh, Last year, the Australians came up with a Rogaine pill where they changed the dose from what it was as a blood pressure pill to now what it is as a hair growth pill. And so that's a capsule you can take every day. They're light. Therapy treatments, which are using red lasers. It's 10 to 20 minutes uh, per treatment, and there have been pretty good improvements. There are hair transplants where they take hair from the back of your head, and they harvest the follicles, and they plant them everywhere you are bald. Uh, The problem with these follicles, first of all, it's laborious. It's expensive. It does work. Those hairs do stay there. But as people age, they develop other areas of baldness. So now you're sort of chasing your tail. And at some point, you may run out of these follicles. So there's an endpoint to that. They now do tattooing, which is sort of interesting. If you have specific bald spots, they can match the color of your hair. And with vegetable dyes, they can tattoo little dots into the area. And these are actually amazing. The hair restoration clinics, I don't think are that keen on these because it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's it's not really labor intensive. And so you don't really hear about this. But I have several patients in my practice that have gone for these. And you really can't tell, especially if it's minor hair loss. There are PRP and stem cell therapists out there for hair. I've never seen that work. It's painful. It's expensive. And then you're also stuck with toupees, which are very easy to spot and very difficult to make look right. So we also have patterns uh, of balding, which I think are interesting. So the most common balding pattern is gradual thinning on the top of the head, Men, they recede at their hairline on the forehead, uh, particularly up on the sides. Women present with a balding spot down the middle, uh, so their part seems to expand. Uh, You can have hair loss from trauma, either emotional or physical. You see this commonly. Those look like patchy spots. Uh, You can have full body hair loss with chemotherapies. Uh, Ringworm can give you some scaling patches. And there's an autoimmune disorder called alopecia areata, and that gives you these same kind of patches. So there are different kinds of reasons for people having uh, these balding episodes. And so as a doctor, it's our job to figure out which one is which, but worse is to try to fix them. So this study uh, at Northwestern, getting back to the, the meat of this article, with genetic manipulation, they figured out how to make stem cells wake up. And they started making these strands again with manipulating the genetics of new hair. They created a specific micro RNA, RNA, these are small strands of RNA that resuscitates the, the follicle stem cells. So they actually can use this micro RNA to wake up these stem cells around the follicle. They mass produced, by the way, this study was done on mice. So I'm going to get to humans in a minute. But So they mass-produced these micro-RNAs. They gave them to the mice. And within 10 days, these mice started growing hair. And it worked on young mice, on old mice. So good for the mice. They're now trying, obviously, to Transition this to humans. And the technology is there. What they're trying to do now is to turn this into a topical, and which they've learned that they can do. They can take these micro RNA particles and put them into a topical. The next step is to then give these to the mice. Instead of injecting them, they're going to rub on this topical on the mice. Uh, they're pretty sure this is going to work because they know, the, they know the technology works. And as soon as they've proven this in the mice, get in line. Is it the same thing, David, that you rub it on and you have to do it, it the rest of your life? That I don't know. I, I, I would imagine. But once you wake up these stem cells, uh, I don't have a. I don't think that they're going to go right back to sleep. I think that you're. And you're not you're growing mouse hair. I just
0: want to be clear. You're growing regular. Well,
2: that's here. that's the big question. <laughs> that's the big question. And leave it to you, Peter, to figure He's that very, part I out. I like
0: clarity. I like clarity.
2: But some people, you know, if they're they're severely affected by this, might not care. All the bald people I know, bring on the mouse hair. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Oh my gosh. Uh, in today's Hey, What About Me? We have a question from Deb about peanut allergies. David, I think you'll like this.
1: Hi, Dr. Kipper. Um, have been listening to the show and really love it, getting so much good information from you guys. Um, so here's what's happening. My 2-year-old, um, I think, might have a peanut allergy. And I know this is going to end up being a problem for him probably the rest of his life. So is there anything available that can keep him safe from being exposed to peanuts.
2: really appreciate your answers. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. Thanks for the kind words. And the answer for your two-year-old is yes. There's something new that's on the market now. It's coming out. And it's common. You know, one in 50 kids has a peanut allergy. And That at seems this like point, a lot. It is a lot. And there's no cure at this point. Uh, the immune system overreacts to the peanut. And you get typical allergy reactions. You get hives wheezing. Your airways can close down. People can die from this. Uh, 20% of these people will outgrow it. And there's a prevalence of peanut allergy, interestingly, and I'm not sure what explains this, that over the last two decades, it's tripled. So either we're diagnosing it better, either there's more peanuts out there. I, I'm not sure where this is coming from. And these poor kids have to carry a rescue medicine. What do they carry? They carry an EpiPen. And that's not fun because it's a needle. Although when you're that sick, you're pretty much okay with like, that. Jim, give it to me. And they they have shown that the peanut allergy can be substantially reduced if the peanut is introduced into the diet between four and six months in very small amounts. And there's a product called Palferiza palpareza, which is a protection now, and it comes as a peanut powder. It's a powder. It was approved in uh, 2020 by the FDA. The problem with this, and it's only been approved for kids 4 to 17, but the bigger problem is that it requires a doctor's visit every two weeks. It's not covered by your insurance. They're now testing this for kids under age 4. But if you think about this, and I know a couple kids that are close to us that have peanut allergies. And it's very difficult. If you invite kids over for a a social event and anyone brings something with a peanut in it, they're always on this surveillance for, are they going to get into trouble? Uh, But here's the new hope, Deb. And this is from a French technology company. And they made a patch that's called ViaSkin. And it's a skin-based immunotherapy that desensitizes these kids under four years old. It's the first non-oral therapy that we have for this. Uh, it's available now in the United Kingdom for kids under age four. They're always ahead of us, but it's so it's out. Um, again, in Chicago, they studied toddlers who couldn't tolerate even a small amount of peanut. And this was an article in our favorite New England Journal of Medicine in May of this year. So this is all pretty new information. They took 360 toddlers from eight different countries. So they had a pretty wide demographic. And they took these patches, and in the patch, they put 250 micrograms of peanut protein, which is about one one one-thousandth of of one peanut. Uh, All the kids wore a patch, and they wear the patch between their shoulder blades. Evidently, that's where it's absorbed the best. And the participants that had a less sensitive peanut allergy could ultimately safely tolerate the peanut protein, and they could tolerate up to an equivalent of eating three to four peanuts. Those with more sensitive allergies could tolerate one peanut in equivalence. And so it reduces the frequency and severity of the attacks in two-thirds of of kids with peanut allergy. Um, And the adverse reactions were 0.4%, so it's very safe. The goal here was not to get kids to be able to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It was to get kids to minimize or mitigate uh, these extreme reactions to peanuts so they didn't have to be so anxious when they got on an airplane, when they went to a party, when they went to a restaurant. And the FDA approval will be coming soon. They're doing larger studies. But again, it's already been used successfully in England. And so, Deb, um, there it is. Move to England, (laughs) get this taken care of, or hold on because it's coming. Wow, that's, that's a good thing to know. You know, let's recap.
1: Today we talked about stem cells in the umbilical cord helping type one diabetics.
2: And these stem cells mitigate this autoimmune reaction which destroys these pancreatic cells that make the insulin. So now we have another bullet in the gun to fight back type one diabetes.
1: And then we talked about our favorite show topic. By the way, the initials of the show, Bedside Matters is BM, may I point out to our audience. So we talked about our favorite topic, fecal transplants.
0: So fecal transplants could be, could be expanding to
2: saving lives in other ways, which is pretty, pretty stunning. Regrowing hair,
0: they're doing it in rodents.
2: Why not people? Yes, they've figured out by genetic manipulation, a micro RNA that can actually wake up these stem cells and the hair follicles and regrow the hair.
0: And our question today from our, hey, what about me segment, peanuts, there's hope for little kids, not only outgrowing them naturally, but a treatment to help you outgrow them or at least not have an emergency.
2: Right, David? Simple patch you wear between your shoulder blades and mitigates these severe reactions. Doesn't make it okay to eat a peanut butter sandwich, but it does keep kids and their parents feeling safe. And thank you, Deb, for the call.
1: And if you have a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you head on over to bedsidematters.org, put in your question there, or leave us a message, and you might just get your question answered.
0: And I'd like to thank Dr. Kipper. Make sure to check out his new book, Override. It's all about how we are biologically and psychologically predisposed to perform a certain way. So whether it's overeating or procrastinating, you can take control of your life. And thank you, Anna Vicino. And his website offers recipes, sauces, which I love, spices, and her cookbook's all about gluten-free, grain-free, and low-carb eating. It's AnnaVicino.com. And thank you, Producer Laurie. And thank you for listening to Bedside Matters, because if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday, so follow us, like us, and have a great week.
1: The information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.